Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Hello again. Welcome to all who've just joined us for World Health Day 2021. And hello again to all who've been here for this morning and for this early part of the afternoon. We've been looking at this theme of health equity and equality from a global macro level. Uh, we just had a fabulous panel looking at the specifics of what we can learn from each other. And this next hour, we're going to be talking to three of the most important experts, thinkers, thought leaders on how being prepared, preparedness, is part of that reach where we're moving towards a more equitable, a more uh, equal, a more resilient society. And um, we know that some parts of preparedness have been ignored, neglected. Uh, they just haven't been on the radar. But now we know that preparedness is coming back. Proposals for treaties, proposal for decade-long um, preparedness uh, processes. Um, we really have a chance to say being prepared is a critical component of health equity and health equity is an absolute requirement to actually be prepared. And um, we're gonna to open today with uh, brief presentations from our three panelists and then engage in a conversation. Our first panelist, uh, Leith Greenslade, I've gotten to know and her role as coordinator of Every Breath Counts Coalition. It's the most uh, effective and comprehensive global coalition I've ever observed, and I've observed a lot over the years. Um, it's the way of bringing together powerful players, global players, and the grassroots players that are out there. And it's built on her deep knowledge about the issues that are crucial to be concerned with and applying the mechanisms of connectivity and coalition building and political organizing to help bring about pretty fundamental change. I'm just so grateful that Leith could join us, could be part of this process today. And I wanna invite Leith to the Zoom screen and welcome to World Health Day 2021. Great, thank you, Mark, so much. Hi everyone, welcome. Very happy to be here with Global Minnesota for World Health Day. I want to talk to you about one of the deadliest inequities that have emerged during the pandemic, and that's access to medical oxygen. So I'm going to share my screen because I have a presentation I'd like to show you very briefly. So you can see a photograph on the cover of this deck. And this for me exemplifies the pandemic and the vulnerabilities of people, particularly across the global South. This is a picture from Peru. We don't know if it's a man or a woman, but this individual is sleeping overnight, waiting in line to get oxygen. The big green cylinders are empty cylinders of oxygen, and they're all lined up in order of your place in the queue to be filled. This individual sleeping probably has a sick loved one at home who is struggling to breathe and they're sleeping, waiting to have that tank filled. Imagine the stress and the anguish when you know someone at home is depending on oxygen and you're waiting to receive it. So I wanna to talk to you a little bit about the crisis in medical oxygen. 
This is uh, some, a tool we built, our coalition, the Every Breath Counts Coalition built this tool to measure the daily need for oxygen across all lower middle income countries. So today it's 15 million cubic metres of oxygen are needed just today to treat COVID-19 patients in lower middle income countries. If you translate that into cylinders, those big cylinders we just saw, that's about 2.1 million cylinders are needed every day. You can see the uh, trend graph on the right is tracking up. That's because the cases of COVID-19 are rising in many lower middle income countries. And when the cases rise, the oxygen need rises. So we're in the middle of a surge, an oxygen surge in the poorest countries of the world, the countries who have health systems that are least able to respond to this demand. And here are the faces of the people behind those numbers. This is just a selection of some of the images we've seen this past year of the oxygen crisis. They're images of suffering for sure. They're also images of love and determination and sheer resilience to get the job done. So I like to look at these images every day because this is why our coalition is working so hard on this issue of access to oxygen, which, by the way, is not often a topic, a priority when we're talking about COVID-19. We, of course, hear a lot about vaccines, which are critical to end the pandemic, and we've heard a lot about diagnostic tests and PPE and some medicines like dexamethasone, all very important but what we often miss are the simple things like oxygen that we take for granted because we have them in hospitals in the US, we have them in hospitals in Europe, but we can't take for granted that oxygen is available in low middle income countries. And this is the evidence you're looking at now of what happens when there is no oxygen. Uh, we appealed, our coalition appealed to global health leaders, WHO and UNICEF and others to, to respond to oxygen and to their great credit. On the 25th of February, they announced an oxygen emergency response. That's the announcement there. You have most of the major global health and development agencies now working to help low middle income countries close the gap, but we are really racing against time. Um, there's many more deaths that will occur because of lack of access to oxygen because we simply can't move the emergency architecture fast enough. We called today for World Health Day. Our coalition called on the US government to step into the mix here. So far, we haven't had US government leadership on access to oxygen, but we know they could do it. Uh, and we know they would make a huge difference. So today we've called on the US government to invest more in USAID to really step up here and provide some leadership in low and middle income countries to close the oxygen gaps. What can you do to help us? We would love, uh, we welcome partners. We're very active on social media uh, with Invest in Oxygen and Every Breath Counts. We're very actively engaged with political representatives from all countries, not just low and middle income countries. So contact your local representatives and talk to them about oxygen. And of course, we would welcome you to join our coalition. We are an open access coalition. And the more the merrier is our motto. We need all hands on deck. And I just wanna close with uh, a story of, of a gentleman from Malawi, which was hit very badly with oxygen surges earlier this year. His name is Paul Masoma. He was 44 years old, one of the leading lights of Malawi, someone you would think of as a future leader, someone Malawi needs to keep alive. 
This is a real message that Paul wrote from his hospital bed in Malawi in Jan on January 13th. He wrote it on his Facebook page. You can read it. It's, it's, it's extremely sad to read, but I'm going to read it to leave you with a message from Paul. Paul wrote on the 13th SOS, in hospital, diagnosed COVID positive. The hospital staff are so wonderful and I can see pain in their eyes. Yes, they have oxygen cylinders, but in my case, they can't connect me to the much needed oxygen because the whole hospital has no oxygen flow meter. That's the little device that measures how much oxygen is coming out of the cylinder. My situation is getting bad and I desperately need oxygen. Anyone who can urgently help out there, please, please help by donating this very gadget. Unfortunately, nobody could help Paul in time and he died four days later. There are many Pauls out there and we do our work to prevent these tragic stories from happening. We urge you, anyone involved in the COVID-19 response to remember Paul's story and that often it is oxygen that is needed in many low and middle income countries and we, we can't turn a blind eye to the very simple things that are often needed in, in low income countries. Uh, uh, countries. Thank you very much for the opportunity, Mark, to, to address uh, your forum, and I hope we can continue to work together to close some of these egregious inequities as we come out of the pandemic. Thank you. Lee, thank you so much, and thank you for sharing that story and reminding us of the people and the grief and the tragic loss. And all day long, we've been able to be thinking about the people the loved ones and all that have been impacted, but also trying to look forward. And I have to say your calls on Mondays at 11 central time, noon East Coast time with uh, reporting in from activists at the community and national level from the whole planet is a signal of the mobilization of this new generation of people who are pushing and won't let an issue stay invisible, won't let the higher ranks of our societies forget the individuals and also are not going to stop until they find the innovations and the political will to address this. And uh, we'll come back to you with some questions. And I want to talk a little more about how we move our own government uh, in that way. But thank you so much. Um, our next guest, Dr. Nekov Sederstrom is a citizen of the world that's landed in Minnesota and we're thrilled by that. And she's the chief equity officer at what we now call um, Hennepin Health. Some of us have always known it as Hennepin County Medical Center, HCMC. It's the large and very amazing deliverer of healthcare to much of our community uh, and in all ways, a very special place. And um, in this uh, uh, opportunity of thinking about World Health Day and focusing on equity, I was thrilled that Nika was able to join us. Dr. Sederstrom, thank you so much for being here today. And please tell us a little bit about how it came to be that there was a Chief Health Equity Officer at Hennepin Health and your role and how you came to this important position. Thank you, Mark, and thank you everyone for having me here today. I recently wrote an article entitled Acknowledging the Burden of Blackness, in which I outlined that by virtue of being born Black in America, one now has a pre-existing condition and that causes suffering in many forms throughout our lives. 
For Black Americans, the reality of inequity begins in utero for the child. Black mothers cannot just have the usual worries around childbirth. They must also pray that they're able to survive this joyful moment and not become another statistic just because she's Black. Birth outcomes of Black expectant mothers and the high mortality rates of postpartum Black mothers tells this story all too well. We all remember the ordeal of Serena Williams who fortunately survived, but we can also recite the names of the others who didn't. Beautiful Black mothers like Shalon Irving, Shaeja Washington, and Kira Johnson. As a Black mother delivering my second child in Minnesota, where the outcomes for Black mothers are some of the worst in the nation, the emotional suffering due to increased anxiety over whether I survived my delivery and subsequent postpartum period was intense. That lack of ability to fill in control of your well-being illustrates why other Black families deal with this sadness on a day-to-day -day basis as they try to navigate the health systems that are founded and maintained in systemic racism. There is the everyday casual racism that causes the continued erosion of dignity, ability, and capacity, that consistent life-altering complication that occurs as a result of bearing the burdens of comorbid conditions that are all due to racism. Black Americans live with generational trauma weighing heavy on our psychological and emotional well-being. It's one of the many reasons we have lower life expectancy rates than our white counterparts. The trauma that has been imprinted on the DNA of descendants of slaves and the colorblind ideology that has been imprinted in the minds of the dominant castes affects our experiences with institutions built on white supremacy like healthcare. The distrust of physicians and the medical establishment is not simply because of research studies gone awry like the Tuskegee experiment but due to the continuous trauma of anti-Black racism that is prevalent in every medical institution throughout our country. As we've seen most recently with vaccine hesitancy and inequality, the continued distrust has significant repercussions within these communities. COVID has devastated the Black community, resulting in a drop in life expectancy by more than two years. The suffering born of inequality is on full display, illuminating what are, that we are far from eradicating the ever-present pandemic of 1619, while we forge on with this battle of COVID-19. To be honest, in a discussion around inequity in Black America, we must first remind ourselves what it means to be Black in America. I recently had a conversation with a colleague about creating a statement around equity and defining how we will work on it in my own institution. This colleague disregarded my and disagreed with my framing of the inequity uh, in the context of qualifiers like discrimination and poverty. Instead, he wanted me to simply state that all inequities we're facing are due directly to racism. Acknowledging the simple yet complex concept of racism is one way to truly make sustainable impact on inequity. We have to pause and appreciate the weight that comes with the identity of being Black. This is not taught in schools, though, as we become activists in this space. We must do the work, the very, very hard work, to re-educate ourselves out of the miseducation that this is still being used to teach our children. We have an opportunity to quickly rip the Band-Aid off and begin recovering. COVID-19 is the ocean we're all in. Some of us get to ride the treacherous waves and yachts, while others are barely keeping their heads above water while hanging on to pieces of debris. The ability to pretend one was not aware of inequities in the United States has come to an end. Continued ignorance is now a personal choice. I believe most of us will choose to address the injustice presented to us. I don't believe we'll go back to the days of colorblind leading the tunnel visionaries. One way this is being highlighted is in the creation of roles like mine in my institution and others across the country. 
bringing together dedicated individuals to work on inequity within all the industries is an amazing first step. As long as these experts are given the resources and authority to actually demonstrate equity in action, we will move mountains. I am concerned with the figurehead positions that are just titles without support or substance, and I urge institutions to be honest in the creation of these roles. If you're not ready to truly address inequity, then don't pretend that you are. In the same vein, there are many who hold titles and do not engage in the work. If you're not an activator and a motivator of change, then step aside for someone who is. This work really requires us getting into the daily grime and getting beaten down with the rest of the world. If staying in an ivory tower and using the title to just gain personal accolades and a paycheck is the action of the leader in your current role, then I beg you to make that change. When you have effective leadership in health equity, the impact is quick and immediate. An example that I wanna share is from our Hennepin Healthcare Vaccine Community Initiative. The initiative started in mid-February with the first pop-up event at a predominantly African-American church that agreed to be our pilot host for such an effort. We vaccinated 114 elders that day who were all grateful and relieved to be able to get their vaccine in a place that they trust with people who they trusted to have their best interest. Some of the typical barriers to getting the same elders to community or hospital clinics were removed by simply going to where it was easier for them to go. Since the first vaccine event, we've completed 14 events, providing almost 2,500 first dose vaccines. We have an additional 2,900 first dose scheduled throughout this month. We started our efforts by making the institutional decision to allocate doses from our own state allocation specifically for equity. We started with 500 doses earmarked each week for equity-only events. We've since grown as our allocation grows and are at 1,000 a week, and we're quickly ramping up to 2,000 a week in our allocations. We've gone from small, intimate church-level events to community organizations banding together to sponsor and support bigger events. We have several set-up series of vaccine pop-ups throughout the rest of the spring and into the summer to ensure they give the people they serve the opportunity to sign up and be vaccinated within their own community. We've seen how the power of word of mouth spreads to increase trust and decrease hesitancy in some of our most at-risk communities. One vaccine event set up in a local mosque has dramatically increased the number of our Somali immigrant community members coming in to be vaccinated. Another event placed in a donated space within a close-knit Southeast and Asian community yielded over 600 doses for people fearing the increase in anti-Asian racism that would not have ventured downtown to clinic to get vaccinated. We recognize the inequities that are causing our black and brown communities to not get vaccinated and are intentionally putting forth efforts to combat them. We talk to them, we ask them what they need from us to make this work, and then we make it happen. That's how equity in action works. This is now the time to make a lasting impact. We can't let this opportunity go to waste and we need all hands on deck who are in it to truly win. We have seen an enormous amount of community collaboration efforts around vaccine equity. We have states making declarations that equity is a priority. And we have a federal administration that is funding efforts to specifically target eliminating racism and health inequities. This is truly the perfect storm. Now, I think I've exhausted all my boat metaphors. And so I, with that, I would just like to say thank you. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thanks, Mark. Thank you very much. And thank you for <clears throat> clearly explaining what does putting into action a strategy, a tactic, a very specific way to tackle one of the critical issues facing us 
right in front of our eyes, right here in our home county. Thank you so much for that. Our third panelist joining us today, Sister Carol Kinn, heads the Health Task Force of Vatican's COVID-19 Commission, which was established by Pope Francis last March. Um, I don't know if you follow Pope Francis, but he's been uh, on our big um, holidays and big religious uh, days, uh, Christmas, Easter, calling on the international community to look at the inequities to get the vaccines being delivered and get the uh, global situation really moving ahead. And so um, this uh, commission is one of the vehicles for that message getting out. Um, Sister Carol was the former CEO of Catholic Health Association, which is the association of the different Catholic health institutions around the country and been a real powerful leading voice um, in discussing ways and advocating ways out loud that we can end the disparities and dis, um, uh, inequalities in our healthcare system. Uh, Sister Carol, thank you so much for joining us today and please join us um, on the Zoom and uh, give us a background and think about where that commission is headed and what your role is in bringing this and bringing this new powerful voice into the international movement to, to deal with health equity. You're still muted. I thought someone had pulled me off. Thank you. Um, and thanks very much for the invitation to be with you today. I'm honored to be here and grateful for your focus on preparedness and health equity. The people of Minnesota have such a reputation for looking at situations in a comprehensive and farsighted way. Given our situation today with this pandemic, we can certainly use your help. There are so many lessons to be learned clinically, ethically, politically, but I think the paramount issue is the importance of honest transparency. This pandemic has been made so much more serious and devastating by multiple failures in all these areas. But the overarching one has been the inability for individuals, corporations, and nations to work together in an honest and transparent way. Early last year, Pope Francis saw this coming and asked himself what the church could contribute um, he could foresee the impact on everyone in the areas of economy, ecology, security, and health itself. And is so typical of him, he was concerned about the serious harm on everyone, but most especially he could see that it would impact most severely on people who were poor. And that poverty could be to economics, race, refugee status, trafficked status, immigrant status, or a combination of any of these poverties. Pope Francis clearly saw the pandemic as a global problem and wanted to see us deal with it as a global family. He wrote an entire encyclical on our need to live in solidarity with each other, not warring, undermining each other, politicizing every choice, whether it is trade, world organizations, efforts, ecology, the economy, in his encyclical letter, he wrote, as I was writing this letter, the COVID-19 pandemic unexpectedly erupted, exposing our false securities. 
Aside from different ways that various countries responded to the crisis, their inability to work together became quite evident. For all our hyperconductivity, we witnessed a fragmentation that made it more difficult to resolve problems that affect us all. Anyone who thinks that the only lesson to be learned was the need to improve what we were already doing or to refine existing systems and regulations is denying reality. The Pope wrote about the many challenging issues, but he also wrote about the need to discuss many new paths of hope. He said, I invite everyone to renewed hope, for hope speaks to us of something deeply rooted in every heart, independently of our circumstances and historical conditioning. Hope speaks to us of a thirst and aspiration, of a longing for a life of fulfillment, a desire to achieve great things, things that will fill our heart and lift our spirit to lofty realities like truth, goodness and beauty, justice and love. With this in mind, Pope Francis formed the COVID Commission with four task forces, one of which is health, and I chair that task force. Our initial approach has been a laser focus on two issues, equitable distribution of the vaccine and treatments, and secondly, reducing the resistance to taking the vaccine. We are clearly aware of the many other areas and issues that need to be addressed and learned from our experience, such as preparedness and communications. And certainly we still have to deal with the many unknowns of the post-COVID health issues. There have been many wonderful choices made, as well as the poor ones that we all know about. One of these, in my opinion, was clearly establishing the COVAX system for aggregating money and vaccines to be distributed in an organized fashion to nations not able to purchase their own vaccines. As our task force looked at how the church could be most helpful, we listened to many groups, political, clinical, research people, pharmaceutical groups, NGOs and Catholic groups, religious communities of many faiths in, in many countries. It was clear to me at first from my time in Catholic healthcare that the one issue that would resurface was the questions of how vaccines were made and or tested. The use of stem cells grown in a lab from tissue originally taken from a fetus aborted many decades ago, I knew would resurface, even though the church has repeatedly addressed this issue, saying that it is perfectly morally acceptable to use these vaccines and that one is not cooperating with or promoting abortions in doing so. I also knew that while we waited for a vaccine, or hopefully lots of vaccines, that core cost and portability were going to be a big factor in the choices made by COVAX and others on which vaccines to buy and distribute. We have focused our efforts on ad advocacy for early action to provide those vaccines to countries who cannot afford them. We have looked at and worked with countries and groups to deal with readiness to distribute the vaccines. We've also have developed ways to use the special strengths of the church to help with reducing the resistance to taking those vaccines. One major project to come out of our task force has been a resource kit 
in multiple languages and dialects to do a number of things. In it are the clear teachings of the church to help those who have a concern, and they are many, uh, about the connection with an abortion decades ago. We also use the words of Pope Francis, assuring them that it is a moral action and a moral duty to be vaccinated for their own health as well as the health of their family and their communities. We developed in a question and answer format, a clinical and ethical guide to vaccines and treatments. These, this guide is designed for bishops, priests, leaders of health treatment facilities, social service centers and schools. We also gave many sample homilies for priests to use to help encourage their parishioners to take the vaccine. It also has several credible websites for them to use to access more information. One important thing that we developed is a family guide to COVID and vaccines. It is in a question and answer format that can be easily reprinted and given out in churches, in clinics, in schools, in social service centers. It can be posted on websites and in other social media. We have translated this resource kit into many languages and are working in some countries to translate the family guide into dialects. We're working also with the diplomats accredited to the Holy See and other government agencies, as well as the WHO and other NGOs to utilize the vast network in many poor countries of sisters, priests, and Catholic lay organizations who have the trust of the people to promote vaccination, as well as to actually do the vaccinations in many of their facilities. One of the most senior scientists said to me, sister, you can put the brightest scientists or the most senior government administrator in front of people and they will not pay attention. Many of these people will have to have someone who's in with them before COVID, will be with them during COVID, and will be with them after COVID. And in many instances, that is the church. <clears throat> we now have a choice in vaccines as well as good scientific evidence of efficacy and safety. We also have a high percentage of people who still refuse to take the vaccine for many reasons. It is imperative that we help them find reliable options for assuring they are getting good and safe vaccines and understanding the importance of getting them. Often there are exceptionally good reasons for their skepticism. Helping to assure a reliable infrastructure and combating counterfeit and fraudulent vaccines is a critical step. Working closely with groups who have the trust of the local people because of their history with them is essential. Additionally, our hope is that this work will help us create networks and connections that will enable rapid sharing of information and assistance as we learn more about this treacherous disease and ways to protect ourselves against it. Thank you very much. And I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Sister Carolyn. I was struck how all of you talked about really the pre-existing condition of inequity, how the pandemic, you know, basically 
brought this into a broader spotlight and it brought some new players into the system. But the important point I heard was it's not automatic. It's not just going to fall from the sky. It's not going to be just because we wish that this situation creates a better future. We have to say out loud, that's the future we want. We have to then organize ourselves, whether it's a global coalition or organizing within the church or organizing within the institution like Hennepin Health. Um, there are different ways, but we have to have an intention. I wonder if any of you or all of you would like to comment on where you see that intersection of intention that gives you twice the power because you're able to connect and partner with another powerful force heading in the same direction that you are. I will um, start with uh, an answer. I, I believe that the only way to move this massive amount of work is to partner with others who have the same dedication, the same vision and goal, and the, and the same willingness to do what it takes to, to really make a difference. And, and through that partnership comes that intentionality. You can't just decide to go into a community and bring in a community initiative and assume that the community is going to embrace it and be fine. But what has to happen is you have to be humble enough to understand that you're, you're the voice of reason in that community. You may have an answer that you think works, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that community agrees. You have to find the people who have already been there, who have already been doing things, who have the trust, who have the reputation and have the, the, um, the report card from the community that says, we agree with the way you do things. And if you say it's okay, then it's okay. And gaining that partnership allows you to be more intentional and deliberate in how you increase your programming. Because you may have thought that an initiative would have worked, but that is not the initiative that actually would work. And, and being able to say, I may not know the answer to this, even though I think I know the answer. And you know, hospitals and big healthcare systems are always assuming we know how to better take care of others. Um, but taking the time to truly and honestly look at what's an intentional, deliberate, and effective um, intervention with a community requires a partnership. And, and I think that having roles like mine as a chief health equity officer allows for institutions to say, we may not know the answer, but we know that we're going to trust somebody who's going to help us find that. And how did you get into the partnership with the first church for your first pop-up? I honestly Googled and then just called and asked. Okay. It was as simple as that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to write that down. We're going to put a quotation. That's fabulous. Yeah, it was a very simple, very easy conversation. The pastor, Pastor McDavid, it was at Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church here in North Minneapolis. I called him and I said, we really, really would like to figure out a way to partner to provide vaccines for your congregation and the elders in your community. How could we make that happen? And he said, I will put you in touch with my program manager and we can make this happen. And they did. They did the heavy lift. They contacted the parishioners. They created uh, frequently asked question handouts and they put them on their social media. They had 
physicians who were part of their congregation do little videos on addressing some of the questions that have been coming up. They use their van to go pick up people and bring them to the site. We, they set up a rotation in their building that allowed for safety and ability to rest for the 15 minutes and be watched and social distancing. And they were sanitizing. They had a nurse who was a retired nurse of the congregation and she was in charge of ensuring everything was sanitized and everybody had hand sanitizer. She was very focused in her job. You can walk anywhere Let's in that talk building. about superheroes here. Yes. We're about superheroes. <laughs> and they did all the organization. We literally just came and gave shots. And it was that kind of partnership that they needed. They didn't need us to control it. They just needed us to be available. But they also needed you to contact them. Yes. And so this is really critical. Leith. Yes. I am a huge believer in working in coalition. And so obviously, because we, the Every Breath Counts Coalition has 50 members and a much wider network. And I'm a huge fan of bringing unlikely friends together. So the kinds of groups that would not normally be in a coalition together, nothing gives me more pleasure than seeing them seated around the same table, having to really come to a middle ground. So in the coalition we go from, we have the, the wealthiest multinational company right through to the smallest NGO based in rural Africa. And we force the two to look at the world through each other's eyes. But, you know, we always, we have a total bias. We always try and have the voice of the most powerless person around the table dominate. So although you're listening to everyone, you're forcing everyone to confront the inequity by listening to the voices of the people who are, you know, facing the ugliest side of life. Um, and only by creating a platform where you force those conversations, um, I think, can you truly get real action. A great problem of our time, it's, it's one of the unfortunate side effects of the deep inequality we all live in in every country. We live in deep inequality now. We don't talk to each other. We have very few opportunities to sit around the table, whether it's virtual or real, and truly confront each other civilly, but always trying to have the voice of the most powerless person dominate the room. Thank you. Nika, do you put that coalition together? And it was with a church in that instance. Sister Carol is talking big picture about connecting to the churches. It seems like there were the things that you described are part of that community that's before, during, and after COVID or whatever the experience. Um, I'm wondering if uh, Sister Carol, uh, did that specific example resonate with what you have found in your organizing work? And are there elements of how that might be woven together for a more powerful, bigger coalition? Uh, you know, I, that's exactly what what we are, are trying to do on a global level. Um, going through the, the um, many of the religious communities and, and many of the organizations like Catholic Relief Services, as well as working with uh, WHO and working with COVAX, um, Gavi, and then unlikely partners, as Leith pointed out, we have, we have a, a, a meeting 
frequently with the national and the international association of pharmaceutical manufacturers. You know, they're, they're people that are often maligned for only being interested in money, et cetera, et cetera. But we've had very good conversations um, and, and uh, they've done some wonderful things to help the, the, the situation um, and to advance particularly um, thrust and, um, and reasonableness in um, portability and vaccines and things like that. So yes, I, I think that's it. Um, uh, we, we have some good models of that uh, globally in some of the African countries with um, a group of lay Catholics and the Daughters of Charity, which is the religious community that I belong to, which is a worldwide community. And they have uh, about 15 or 20 years now of experience in maternal infant transmission of HIV in African countries. And because of listening to the people as Nika talks about, and, and because of dealing with their real issues, they have a 99% um, effectiveness in preventing maternal infant transmission of HIV. But it is with a lot of humbly holding people's hands, humbly listening to what their issues are, humbly trying to help them with their issues um, that people, you know, and, and a real concern of, of the issue that might not be the hospital issue, um, you know, your medicine. Well, that's fine. That's important. But if you don't have wa clean water or you don't have food. And so um, it is it is really important, I think, to do the listening and to do the partnering and to be open to anybody of goodwill. Because people, I'm really amazed at how many people there are of great goodwill who want to help. And to want to help, want to help you in, in the mission you have. And this um, desire, the human nature of humanitarianism or empathy or, um, you know, feeling a connection and wanting to find a way, it seems like COVID has presented some barriers, of course, because of all the elements, um, but COVID has also really helped move us to a place of saying, you know, if we're not all okay, none of us are going to be okay. Now, this is sure, yeah. another way of thinking about climate. If we don't quit destroying our climate in the way we are, I mean, this will affect and it will affect people differently. But this coronavirus has really been kind of global. I wonder if the analogy of preparedness you know, as as a portion of getting to some of the inequities that will be exacerbated if we're not prepared, if the new discussion about the treaty, the possible treaty about pandemic preparedness and response, or the idea of a decade of uh, United Nations decade for pandemic preparedness, do any of these resonate as uh, tools that could be used in the broader um, kind of mobilization of the public and in the creation of truly uh, innovative and truly successful partnerships? You know, I would say yes, uh, very, very definitely. 
I, I don't know what's the best way to go at it, whether it's that treaty or something else, but we have to go at it because we were woefully underprepared. Um, and we are among the richest, one of the richest nations in the world. I mean, when you think about people saying, well, we couldn't do the tests because we didn't have cotton swabs. You think about the number of nurses and physicians and auxiliary staff in our hospitals who did not have enough personal protective equipment. I mean, that's not, you know, building a rocket. That is very simple things. And I, I, I think it's just really clear that in many ways we had just cut corners and cut corners and you can, you can pass on a curve and get away with it sometime. You pass on enough curves and you're going to have an accident. And I think that's what happened to us. I would agree with uh, Sister Carol. And I would add that, um, especially for like the United States, we can't jump into global treaties like this and uh, pandemic preparedness if we haven't done the work ourselves to just get our own house taken care of. The inequities that were highlighted with COVID, many felt were like that this was a surprise. And that in of itself is a problem that we have to face. This is not a surprise. Inequities are not new. They've been here and they've been a part of the fabric of our being since we started as a country. And if we don't take the time and energy to address those, then we're not gonna be able to be a good resource to other people in the world in trying to help. We can't say that we could help them deal with their inequities and then turn a blind eye to our own. So I think that some version of a treaty makes sense, but I, what I would hope is that if our country and others decide to sign on, that we all take the responsibility of making sure that our own inequities are, are being treated as we build this global coalition to prepare for another event coming in the future. Amen. Yeah, let me, let me just add a few thoughts. So I think um, coming out of the pandemic, we're going to be asking a lot of questions about the United Nations and the international architecture, because it's not fit for purpose in a world where climate change and pandemics, I think, will continue, you know, to continue to occur. This is like a, we've had a taste, I think, of the world to come. And the international global health agencies are just not where they need to be to respond effectively. So I think we're going to have a, we need a whole reassessment of the system that was built after World War II, you know, another tragedy. It served, it served us quite well in the decades after World War II, but it has not, it is not serving us well in the current, with the current threats. So I'm hoping for a conversation about a radically different UN, like a UN 2.0. Um, that has the full support of the all of the major uh, com uh, countries, but that has new institutions. You know, the World Health Organization has many flaws. It really has its hands tied. We need to untie those hands and have international agencies that can truly act quickly and also hold countries to account. So this is, we're entering a, a phase, I think, where national governments will need to come to some uh, understanding that we need powerful international institutions and that maybe they won't dominate. National governments can't always dominate in specific sectors like health. We had a very interesting panel and then a presentation with um, 
former Prime Minister Helen Clark uh, from New Zealand. And um, when she was Prime Minister, they upgraded and prepared their pneumonia or their flu influenza pandemic plan, which they had in place and they were able to respond. And we know New Zealand's had a good effect, but she will be bringing forth as the leader of the independent panel on preparedness and response to the World Health Assembly. Um, I think ideas and suggestions that are somewhat along these lines, Leith, and just in terms of thinking, what, what do we need to have in place uh, to go forward. And I'm, I'm reminded that uh, it takes some kind of a crisis or some kind of a, a, a shocking event to get us to move. I mean, even uh, Mayo Clinic came out of a terrible tornado where the nuns, the sisters uh, who provided the care and the Mayo father and the two sons who were part of the care, uh, the sisters said, listen, we've had this gigantic tornado and hundred people killed and many people injured. We we gotta we gotta be prepared. We gotta have a real hospital. And and at first Dr. Mayo said, no, no, that's not what we do. But the Mother Superior insisted they made it happen. And today we have Mayo Clinic, but it took a tornado that killed many, many people to then precipitate that kind of thinking. And we've had an unbelievable impact of this COVID. So we're trying to harness it to make the changes, especially around inequality and, and disparity. And that's our purpose going forward. Would each of you like to take part of this last few minutes and give our audience from around the world some wisdom and advice about the ways that they can think about how to be the best kind of partner with others to then maximize and multiply their power to make change. I guess I'll go first. Um, uh, I would say that I think I think we all have to just take inventory on where we are, figure out the things that are the simple low-hanging fruit that can be quick wins to help with getting the momentum built. I think we have to trust that people are in this for the right reasons. I think we have to give people some grace when they're not aware of the mistakes that they may be making or as they stumble in this work. Um, and I believe that coalitions and partnerships are the way to move things forward. And without that, we're not going to. I think the, the COVID-19 experience has helped us all see that um, even when it seems like the world is coming to an end, we can still pull together and make it through. And we can make it through better than where we started. Uh, and we can do things that we never thought were possible, like work from home with five children running around and a dog and a cat in the background, right? Like we can make things happen in the most uncomfortable situations and still come out on top. Facing inequity is the most uncomfortable situation. And we can work on making differences and coming out on top when we put together our minds and our resources and the intent uh, and partner with the community, there's there's nothing that can stop us in actually making a difference and moving forward. So I am fully prepared and excited and can't wait to see what happens 
this day has been a great day and I've been listening on and off throughout the day with some of the most amazing speakers. And I'm really excited that the World Health Organization has outlined health equity as the focus and the strategy. And I think that this is this is the time, this is the moment for us to look back on 10 years and go, that was it. That was the catalyst that got us to now where we are. This, all this low-hanging fruit that we didn't even know was there that has been settled has been addressed and people feel the movement and can now tackle some of the bigger, more heavier lifts um, because those easy things are knocked off and, and we can see that we can make progress. Uh, and I think that this is the moment for us to shine and I'm really excited to be part of it. Thank you. Um, you know, one of the things I, I, I certainly agree with Dr. Nika, and I, I think um, she made a, a number of wonderful points. We have a lot to do. This, this is a big, big problem, and we don't have the best um, political environment, and we don't have, for us as a country, we have some real challenges, um, never mind the challenges that we see in so many other countries. But I think it is it is really important as we try to look honestly at what went right, what went wrong, what needs to be fixed, that we we need to take comfort in the fact that you eat an elephant one bite at a time, and we can do it better together, and we can enjoy doing it more together. Um, and I do think it it is a time that while we have a lot of things we need to fix, a lot of things we need to uh, repair, uh, a lot of things we need to build anew, um, we, can, we can not only do it together, but we can enjoy doing it together and we can become closer. We can solve many issues as we work together on this issue that we think oh, I didn't realize how talented that person was. I didn't realize the resources. I didn't realize, I didn't realize. And suddenly we've moved to much more of resolving this really serious global problem as a global family. And that would be, that would be an incredible, incredible step forward. I would add um, advice to those building um, coalitions to identify the most powerless person and build the effort around that individual. And if you're making a demonstrable difference in the life of that individual, you're on the right track. So for us, it's that young man or woman in hospital in Peru or Bangladesh or Zambia with COVID and there's no proper treatment. And that person will probably die because they're in Peru or Bangladesh or Zambia with COVID and there's no proper treatment. And that person will probably die because there are not simple things like oxygen, PPE and other healthcare. If we're not helping that person, we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. So that would be my advice to anyone working in in this in COVID at the moment is build or anything any area really of social justice build your effort around 
the person who is who has the least power and elevate that person. I like like my colleagues, I'm enormously optimistic, even though we've had the most horrendous year, really, everyone in the world. I'm enormously optimistic because of the way the human race tends to rebound after tragedy. We always come out of these episodes with a great period of creativity, innovation, a desire to cooperate rather than compete and to move out, move ourselves one big step forward. So I'm actually, after we get the vaccines will come, this pandemic will be behind us. I'm looking forward to that next decade when I think we have a window to truly transform institutions, um, the way we relate to each other on race, gender, you name it, all the things that have divided us in the past. This is gonna be our big moment this next decade. So I'm I'm very excited to get there, Mark. We need to get all of this behind us so we can get to that spot. And I know Global Minnesota will be right there in the middle of it. So thank you. Well, thank you so much and amen to all of that. And what I love is that now we have this hour long recording. And so when I wanna get my inspiration pumped up, I know where to look when I have friends in Asia who are in bed asleep right now and aren't able to watch us. I could say, you've got to go watch this amazing panel. All of you in your life's work, you are changing the planet and saving lives. But in explaining and taking time today to really talk and to be public and talk about how it is you approach your work, you've given a roadmap and the inspiration to get people into this movement. And Leith, I think that next decade is going to be really, really something. But of course, we're all going to have to put our shoulders to the wheel and make it happen. Uh, Naka told us about if you're not ready to lead, get out of the way. And Sister Carol talked about, you know, really building out from the bottom up how we do our work. These are the elements of that partnership that multiplying our power that we've been able to see in our guests that are watching today have been able to really receive as a gift of treasure from all of you. Thank you all so much. And I look forward to all the things we'll get to do together, working to get us to a new place, but working to make that new place a different place, a better place, a place that is for the future. Thank you again and goodbye. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you, Mark.